So this week we transition into class five on church governance, church governance and church polity. So we, we've been working through the uh, Capitol Hill course seminars and this week we, and within this, uh, this course seminar study, we're thinking through membership and church unity and membership. So what we wanna think about today specifically is church governance. Now, in all honesty, church governance probably isn't something that most Christians think about much. So it's like uh, the transmission on a car engine. We know it's important, but we don't give a whole lot of thought to it. But if it wasn't there, or if it was broken, we would definitely notice. That's why we want to take an entire seminar to think about church governance, church polity. It's an important part of keeping the church running faithful uh, to its God-given mission over many, many decades. And the more we know how church governance works, the better we can adjust the way we live as much as, uh, as church members who want to promote unity within the congregation, right? So, to start, let's define church governance. So church governance can be defined as the system by which decisions are made in a church. So if you uh, think, for an example, of the question of what uh, should be put in the church's statement of faith, or how do we decide um, what questions uh, will be in our um, or, or should be brought up in our, our system of, of governance. Um, church governance can be a great tool for unity or a great opponent of unity within the church. So church governance is important in part because God wrote about it in his word, right? So we ought to give heed to it. And so he is glorified as we follow his own instructions for how the church should be ordered. So as we do it, a proper, a proper authority should protect and prosper the unity of the church. Now, with that said, let me lay out a brief outline for our time together this morning. So first, we'll look at a brief overview of church governance and different forms of polity or governance. Then we'll look at the two leadership offices within the church given in scripture, which are elder and deacon. Then we'll think about the congregation's role. And as we consider these issues, we want to focus especially on unity, as has been the theme of these classes. We're focusing in on unity within the local church, okay? So how organizing the church in accordance with scripture promotes unity and how we can each live within that organization to maximize the love and witness of our local church. Now, if you were to go to our church website, under the About Us um, section, you'll see a link to our Constitution. So our Constitution contains eight articles, and the sixth and the seventh articles deal with what membership and officers are within our church. So Article 7 specifically says this, Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18, Ephesians 1.22-23. And he governs his church through office bearers whom he appoints and whom he has endowed by the Spirit with the gifts and graces needed to accomplish their work. The biblical offices of the church are two kinds, elder, or pastor, and deacon. 
Now, this is a basic statement of uh, con congregational polity or church governance. But three things we should note as we consider church polity. One, <clears throat> or first, the authority of the church is Jesus Christ alone. So he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and that absolutely means that he has all authority in his church. So Colossians 1.18 says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. All right. A second consideration. We see that Christ governs through the office bearers in the church, and these office bearers are appointed by him, that is, according to his word, and gifted by his spirit to carry out the duties and responsibilities of their office. Third, we see that there are two offices established by Christ and his church, elders and deacons. Now, as I mentioned before, there are different forms of polity. So we hold to our form of church polity because we believe that it is biblical and authorized and most wise. But again, there are other forms which I'll, I'll briefly mention now. So there is an Episcopal form of governance or polity, which uh, Roman Catholics, Anglicans, um, Eastern Orthodox would ascribe to that policy. There's Presbyterian church polity, which Presbyterians would hold to. Uh, and there's congregational church polity, which Baptists uh, and others would hold to. The Episcopal polity describes a church in which the source of authority is the college of bishops, typically bishops within the historic um, episcopate or office of bishops. Presbyterian polity describes a church in which the source of authority is considered by a synod of presbyters. Uh, in Anglican churches, bishops share power with presbyters and laity under a constitution. Congregationalism is a system of church governments, uh, governance in which every local church congregation is ecclesiastically independent and autonomous. That is, within the local church itself is the total structure of ultimate church authority sufficient for its complete governance. So congregational polity holds that there is no authorization in scripture by command or example, which follows, uh, which allows for an authority or authority structure in the church that goes beyond that of the individual local church. That's why we are, we hold to a congregational church government. So the authority by which Christ governs his church is his word and the individual local congregation has the fundamental responsibility under God for the maintenance of all aspects of public worship and ecclesiastical governance according to that word. Now, so nothing can be imposed upon her from a higher authority because there is no higher authority. In other words, congregational polity holds that responsibility and authority regarding all matters concerning the ministry of the local church resides in that local church, okay? That's what makes us distinct in our church governance and, and polity. 
Now, of, of course, there, uh, this is a common understanding among Baptist churches, but not all Baptist churches agree on how this is structured on a church level, on a local church level. So some churches are congregational-led. In other words, this structure, or we believe, this structure is subject to weakness and democracy, and then that immature or uninformed members have as much authority and influence in terms of voting as the most mature, knowledgeable, and experienced. And this tends towards, or could, diminishing the proper respect and honor appropriate for the God-ordained, biblical-defined offices within the church. Other churches are single pastor-led. So this form of polity can tend towards the problem of an autocracy, where one person has absolute power, and often this form of government lacks effective means of keeping um, authoritarianism from taking over, right? So it lacks a means of correction, and it often discourages honest critique of the leader since he has all authority. Um, and it can also tend to promote yes-men in, in leadership. Uh, there's also a plurality of pastors and elders. This form of polity both avoids those former problems. Uh, in this polity, Christ rules through a plurality of men who Christ has gifted and called to this office, who govern according to his word. So each is responsible under Christ for the governance of the church. Each is accountable first to Christ, but also accountable to each other equally. So we would hold to a plurality of elders and pastors, and not only plurality in pastors and elders, but also parity among pastors and elders. Parity is another way of saying equality. When there is parity among pastors, there, is, um, there are equal in calling, qualifications, responsibility, and authority. Even while there will be a diversity um, in their particular strengths and abilities and specific roles, no pastor is primary, more important, or more powerful. In this context, iron can truly sharpen iron. So, how are congregations to be ordered? First, let's um, look at Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Acts chapter 14. Verse 23. <clears throat> Acts 14, verse 23 says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting. Titus 1.5 there's another verse we can look at when we consider how the congregation should be ordered. Titus 1.5 says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Christ has given as under-shepherds to his flock elders or pastors. Now let's turn first to the offices uh, that, that, have, that we see in the Bible. First, we'll look at elders and then deacons. 
Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, describing these offices because most of us are familiar with them and uh, you would have been introduced to, to them in the new members class. But for our purposes this morning, I want us to focus instead on the benefits that these authority structures provide for the unity of the church. Okay? So first, elders. Let's look at the office of elder. So the term elder, or in Greek, presbyteros, is used interchangeably with overseer or bishop. Um, episcopus and pastor uh, Poiminus, which we see in Acts 20, 17 to 37. So elders are charged with the spiritual oversight of the church. So in Acts 20, verse 28, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained by his own blood. So we see in Acts 6 also that elders should especially devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They're also charged with being the principal governing body of the church, according to 1 Timothy 5, 17, which says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 to 5, it says this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, with that background in mind, let me suggest four ways that having a biblical eldership promotes and protects unity in the church. First, the elder model of leadership places authority and those qualified by Christ to exercise it. So it entrusts the primary preaching and teaching responsibilities, along with other significant decision-making authority to those who meet certain qualifications as set forth in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, 6 to 9. So Titus 1, 6 to 9, you can turn there, or you can just listen to me read it. It says this, now, what's interesting about Titus 1, 6 to 9 is what we see in the qualifications of those whom uh, Christ has appointed, uh, look for qualifications that refer to um, their social status or economic status or whether they're simply seen as popular or um, things that are just sort of tertiary. Um, what you'll notice uh, that it primarily focuses on the man's character, um, the man's uh, being above reproach. Titus 1, 6-9 says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. 
Uh, verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Just like you would, wouldn't entrust your medical care to someone without uh, with qualifications for it, the church is assured that those who are charged with the most significant responsibilities have met certain biblical criteria that establish their character and ability to serve. This fosters unity because we recognize a common standard that elders must live up to. So uh, the men who uh, want to, and we've seen this in certain places, I know I've seen it in my own sort of church history, um, men who want to occupy a place or have a name can come up with their own ideas of what qualifies a person. Um, and it's at times a deviation from scripture and other qualifications are set so that they meet those qualifications and are able to occupy a certain office to have a certain name. But this is given by Christ and he has the authority to determine who he wants um, or what, what he has given to the man to occupy these certain offices. Um, the special emphasis isn't on the man, which is why when you think about our constitution, in Preamble 7, it says that they're given the graces and gifts needed. They need grace <laughs> and gifts as they occupy these offices, <clears throat> right? Going on to our second point. The elder leadership places special responsibility for the spiritual health of the membership in the hands of those who have special accountability to God. So in Hebrews 13, 17, the author says that elders, of elders, that they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account, as those who will have to give an account. So this means that godly elders should lead the church as men who fear God first, not men. God upholds elders responsible, or he holds them responsible to obey Ephesians 4, 12 to 13, which says, the elder's job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, until we all attain the unity of the faith. Again, it, it's not individual Christianity here. This is a, a corporate um, striving for unity, a corporate striving for maturity in the faith. And Christ has given these offices to do just this. A third way that elders, uh, elder leadership promotes unity is through God's requirement that members obey their leaders and submit to their authority, uh, Hebrews 13, 17. So when we submit to authority together, it promotes unity. So like in a home or in our own relationship with God, a humble recognition of rightful authority brings benefits. So Hebrews 13, 17 says, 
Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, lots of people, and particularly maybe in my generation, um, are uncomfortable with the idea of authority anywhere. There's sort of this anti-authority uh, mindset, not to mention in the church. And we recognize that authority can be abused, right? We've, we've seen that as well. It can be sinfully misdirected, but God divinely ordains authority. And it's for our good as a church. And it's also for the good of the members individually because learning to trust authority is good for us spiritually. In the church, when the elders' authority is used for the good of the congregation, the congregation benefits as God builds his church, right? And the elders are called to exercise their authority rightly. So 1 Peter 5 says this in addressing the elders. In verse 2 to 3, in 1 Peter 5, it says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So elders should be marked by a use of their authority, which shows that they understand that the church belongs not to them, but to Christ. They should be servant-hearted and exhibit the same um, humility that Christ exhibited. Uh, fourth and finally on this, the biblical model of elder leadership promotes unity by establishing a plurality of elders instead of having the leadership of the church rest heavily on one man's shoulders. So in Acts 14.23, again, I think I've read this, but I'll read it again. Acts 14.23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We see this in Acts 14.23, Acts 16.4, Acts 20, verse 17, Titus 1.5, James 5.14, and many other verses uphold this idea of a plural eldership. But how does having multiple elders foster unity in the church? A few ways. For one, decisions made by the elders collectively rather than by a single elder are more likely to have the interests of the flock at heart rather than one man. When you think about Proverbs 15:22, it says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. So having a plurality of elders means that elders have humility as they relate to each other, and their humility should be a model for the whole church, right? The other side of this is that a plurality of elders increases the members' confidence in decision-making processes while alleviating the pastor from bearing all the criticism from a decision, right? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> also, a plurality of elders enables the leadership to know the congregation better. So practically considering this, 
Usually it's much easier for multiple elders to know and care for different parts of the congregation than for a single pastor. With the plurality of elders, it's less likely that the members of the congregation will feel neglected or feel like they don't have access to the leadership. Okay? Now, how does this understanding of the office of elder change the way we live as church members so that we can build unity as a church, right? How does this understanding help us to build unity as a church? (coughs) First, the members of a local church should joyfully and willingly submit to their leadership. The elders' authority in this regard is tied to the faithful teaching of the scriptures. So Hebrews 13, seven says, remember your elders who spoke the word of God to you. Now, does this mean that an elder can tell you uh, what car you should purchase? You must get the blue car. You must get the red car. You must get the CRV. You have to get the Mercedes. No, he tells you that you should maybe question him. (laughs) 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 Nothing wrong with Mercedes. I like Mercedes too, just can't afford it. Um, No, this does not mean that they can tell you what car you ought to buy. Elders have the authority to lead the congregation by explaining the word of God and applying it in specific circumstances, right? So they provide godly wisdom based on spiritual principles and truths. Second, consider ways to encourage the elders and pray for them. It's needed more than you realize. Part of that involves the perception we create of of elders in the eyes of others. It doesn't mean that we never ask questions of elders or ask them to explain what they mean. It means that we do so in a way that assumes the best and helps others to align with Christ's rule in his church through the men he has qualified for these specific offices. Third, consider the qualifications of those put forward as potential elders. Although we should strive uh, to give the, uh, I'm sorry, although we should give elders recommendations of a prospective new elder, uh, we should give that great weight. We should also uh, make an effort to get to know uh, any prospective elders. So if you don't know a prospective elder at all, seek the opportunity between the time the person's name is put forward uh, and that in the uh, members meeting, which is about a month from the time they're put forward to the time they're brought on, to talk to that prospective elder and to ask them questions and to you know, get to know them. Just some practical advice there. And all this, remember that our elders serve as under shepherds of the great shepherd. They won't be perfect like Jesus is. They cannot be. Uh, when they do lead like Jesus, we should encourage them. We should follow them as they follow Christ, okay? Uh, So thoughts and questions before we move to deacons, second office. Diana Lynn. Um, This is very interesting biblically because I agree that their elders are all equal in calling and everything. Yeah. But I never saw that. Mm. I've never been in a church. This is a first mm. church. Right. And this is the first time that I'm ever actually hearing it mm. um, as a, I mean, I heard it from a couple people, but I didn't know that. Yeah. 
I had yeah. no idea of that because I've always been in a church. Whoever's the main preaching. Me too. Is okay. Right. Good. Yep. So me too. I'm not too far off. <laughs> <laughs> At least I got company. Right? <laughs> Makes me feel better. Yeah. So I think that will will change the way I look hmm. at the church yeah, in a good. good way. It's good. You know, good. because I just never, I never knew that it wasn't a question that I don't agree. Because as you put it out, it's obviously biblical. Yeah. You know. Thank you for that comment. So that's helpful. It's great. Yeah. Well, and then we'll get Norm. Um, just sort of as a, a practical challenge, it seems if. Um, there's not one leader convinced to uh, who has the kind of final say. You know, how do you overcome disagreements as a plurality of elders? Yes. It seems like that's kind of overcome in, in the marriage relationship mm. where, you know, you're supposed to cooperate and, and, yeah. and discuss decisions, but the, you know, the head, the, the male, the man has the final say. Yeah. How do you work that out? Yeah, that's it. It's a, it's a good question. So uh, the question, if there are um, four elders and two say yes and two say no, then what do you do? Um, first, I think there has to be humility. So this isn't um, men sort of vying for their own um, ideas of what should happen as if uh, they can't or shouldn't compromise. Uh, I would take it case by case, depending on the situation. I don't think there's a, a cookie cutter answer for that because it can be very complex. The issue can be very complex. The circumstance can be something that's really deep and complex. So I would take it case by case. But us holding that the local church and those elders appointed by Christ in that local church, they have the authority given by Christ to make these decisions. Does it mean that we are um, sort of separatists and that we can't talk and get wisdom from other churches. We don't hold to a Presbyterian form of church government or a church government that says another church has authority, but we can get wisdom from other brothers in the faith at those local churches. Um, if there's a situation within the church, let's say they don't seek wisdom outside of the local church. We do believe that's there. I, I, I don't, and saying this, I don't mean to say that we can't talk to others or get wisdom from other pastors or churches. But let's say that it is just with these four elders and they're thinking through something and two say yes and two say no. I think there ought to be with prayer and humility at times, there are times where we just need to say, maybe this is not something um, that I agree on right now. It could be a blind spot in my own thinking, in my own theology, um, or just how I view the situation. We should, as much as possible, try and gather information and facts so that we're informed, so that our conviction is as well-informed as possible with scripture and knowledge of the situation. And there ought to be humility. Without knowing the situation, I can't say uh, it ought to be this or ought to be that, but I would generally say that those principles ought to be there. Wisdom, uh, humility, and prayer. And I mean, eventually you have to move forward with some direction. So. We're hoping that there's humility and the pastors would be able to, and, and prayer and wisdom come to some, some conclusion. So other pastors, you guys want to add to that? At the, at the end of the day, Amazon has a special coin. <laughs> if, it, if only it were that easy. <laughs> Get Prime to answer this for us. You guys want to, want to speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to say, I mean, I'm happy to say 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we've had some difficult cases and different situations. But it's a hard question to answer because so many different things would be before us. Right. So many things are very just right. and we're all in agreement. Yeah. There may be, you know, things of rather lesser significance um, where it's easy to just say, well, that's what you guys think. That's, that's fine. Yeah. If something is really weighty and yet somewhat ambiguous, um, there, I, I would say there have been a few things that, that have fallen into that category um, where people have had some pretty strong positions on something which um, we didn't have full unity on. And in some ways, I think what's, what's happened is the status quo kind of maintained um, and we worked to try to um, bring our minds together You know, I think the principles that you laid out, brother, are right. I think there needs to be humility, um, a willingness to cooperate, uh, wisdom, seeking outside counsel is always good. But I, again, I'm thankful that we haven't had uh, big, big obstacles. Yeah, no, I was just going <coughs> to piggyback on what you said and what Pastor you just said. <coughs> as far as those weightier issues, Usually those are more clear from yeah. scripture about decisions that we need to make. Good point. And then when we get into some of the things of lesser significance, although it's still somewhat important, then those areas that aren't black and white and you're just trying to walk in wisdom through them and think through uh, maybe certain things within a ministry like how right. to govern that, um, just giving ourselves that time for prayer and counsel and thinking through those things before we make a decision. Yeah. Uh, but they're usually, thankfully, not things that require like an immediate decision. And those things that do are usually <coughs> bigger, weightier things that are more clear from Scripture that we really don't have any disunity on. And that are easier to point to Scripture and show kind of case in point where we can work through those things. Yeah. Amen. Good questions, though. Okay. Uh, I have one more. Okay. <laughs> we'll go. I just want to encourage everybody. I've been here like almost ten and a half years, and the open door policy to go in and express yourself is very humble by the leadership here. Hmm. They're very open to. Um, your way of thinking and taking that in consideration as they pray. And I, as being an opinionated person, <laughs> I appreciate that, the humility that they show in being open. So I want to encourage you, if you have any concerns at all, before you go to anybody, just go to them. They are so open and uh, humble before the Lord to hear you. Good advice. Dave and then, okay. Let's go to the office of deacon. <clears throat> so the second type of office clearly set out in scripture is the office of deacon. In the New Testament, the word diakonos can be translated deacon or servant. It refers and it can refer to service in general. Uh, but deacons attend to the practical details of church life, such as administration, maintenance, and the care of church members with uh, physical needs. So Acts 6, verses 1 to 6. Let's read that, and then we'll go from there. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Mm -hmm. 
starting at verse 1, I'll read it for us. <clears throat> it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint rose by the Hellenists amongst, uh, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And when the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word. And they said, and what they said pleased the whole gathering as they chose, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and uh, uh, Prochorus, I think is how you say that, and uh, uh, Nicanor, and uh, Timon, and uh, Perinus, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. <clears throat> so the qualifications for deacons um, are laid out also in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 12, and are similar to those of elders. There is, however, a clear difference. Unlike elders, deacons aren't required to be able to teach. You can see uh, 1 Timothy 3 in that. So how does a proper biblical understanding of the relationship between deacons and elders foster unity within the church? In Acts 6, we see something of the root of this distinction and the roles and responsibilities of deacons and elders. <clears throat> in chapter 6, verse 1, we read that the Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews, were complaining against the Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so, by the recommendation of the apostles, the church appointed deacons to make food distribution among the widows um, more equitable. So in this, we see three ways the deacons contribute to the unity of the church. First, deacons care for all the members of the church. Their work among the widows in Acts 6 was important because the physical neglect of the Hellenists was causing a spiritual disunity. One group of Christians were, being, were beginning to complain against another group on a particular, in, in a particularly dangerous way, which is among cultural lines. This seems to be what, in particular, caught the attention of the apostles. In attending to all the widows, the deacons diffused the situation and preserved the unity. Second, deacons and acts are or allow the apostles to devote themselves to uh, prayer and the ministry of the word. You see that in verses 2 to 6 in Acts 6. Um, and it says this, The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Today, deacons play the same role in support in the ministry of the elders. Our elders are able to spend time in prayer and study and preparation, in part because the deacons are coordinating other physical needs of the church and its members. So this is a living picture of unity. Deacons humbly pursuing their service while elders teach and lead, each embracing their God-given role. 
right? Finally, a third way that deacons cultivate unity is by distributing certain work throughout the congregation. So deacons at times coordinate volunteers and particular needs of the church. This can prevent a disproportionate amount of work from falling on just a few of the members. And it enables all members to have the opportunity to participate and the joy of serving others. So with that said, what are some of the implications of the deacon's work for the rest of us, for those who aren't office bearers? A couple of thoughts. First, this understanding of deacons should inform how we consider the appointment of potential new deacons. If deacons are ones to foster unity, then those who serve in this capacity should be uniters and not dividers, right? They should be concerned about protecting not their own turf, but given to a kind of service that is for the unity of the body and the maturity of the body, right? Um, they're not like a second house of the legislature competing uh, for, with each other or others in the church or the elders. Instead, they come on behalf of the whole to serve particular needs, yes, but with the sense of contributing to the whole body. Um, second, we should, as members, support the deacons by looking for opportunities to come alongside them with our hands and with our prayers. In doing this, we promote unity and the church by encouraging um, the deacons, uh, by serving the body and helping and distributing the work. So we'll be talking more about this in class seven, more specifically on serving and growing. But um, for now, let's, uh, let's close out in thinking about the responsibility of um, the members. So the question for us is, does this congregational uh, rule or, or does the congregation have responsibility to help the unity of the, church, the local church as well? Do the non-office bearers in the church have responsibility to preserve and help the unity of the local church? Let me suggest two ways that that can be done. First, we should take seriously the responsibility we have to guard against false teaching and error in the church. Uh, we love the Bereans described in Acts 17, 11, um, which says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. If you believe that there is a doctrinal error taught from the pulpit, then you're responsible to learn more about that and to talk to an elder in person to find out what that pastor or elders believe on that point. If another gospel is taught that does not line up with the teaching of Christ and the apostles, then you have a liberty and responsibility to say something and wisdom and, um, and maturity and being charitable. Second, we should take seriously our membership privileges and responsibilities. So we should attend the church business meetings, right? Whenever we have them, we should be participating and thinking through the various things that are set out, right? We should be thoughtful, inquiring, and wise. So we're not just, not just there sort of passing the time, but we're talking about these things together as a church because they're important. So we should give, give thought to these things. Um, this is another way that we can promote unity in the body. 
right? And we, we have certain matters that we, what we have um, voted on, right? So when, um, after I became uh, an elder, to be able to come on staff, there was a vote that was taken, right? So there's a, your, there's a participation in that, a responsibility that you have, right? You have responsibility to come to me, to have come to me to make sure I was someone who was above reproach. You can hold the scriptures out and say, you know, talk to me and learn of me and my family, right? You have that responsibility as the church for any potential uh, pastor. By voting on certain matters and considering along with the rest of the, of the congregation on important issues, we are showing our agreement, assuming we do agree, with the leadership and with the rest of the church on these specific actions, right? So these should be done again with prayer and wisdom. <clears throat> In closing, as we reflect on FBC as a church, let's not forget that it is Christ's church. He sustains his bride, he upholds his bride, he sanctifies his bride, and he will bring her to a perfected state in himself. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification, Romans 4.25. Uh, it is his example of humility that we follow as a church and of course, it is for our good and for the glory of our triune God. Okay? So that's all I have for us today on governance and polity. Let me close in prayer. Our God and Father, we give you thanks for giving us in your word instructions for life as a local church and life in the local church. You haven't left your church to herself um, in uh, confusion to grapple around in the dark, but you have given her instruction, wisdom from on high on how she ought to be governed and instructed. And we pray that you will continue to give us wisdom as we look at scripture and um, as our thoughts are informed by your word, as our sister said even earlier, um, maybe some of these things we haven't considered and haven't thought about and just haven't looked at in scripture, but um, as your word is given by you and as it is the authority by which we are governed and even sanctified, may we give ourselves to see these things as important, to give ourselves to the study of scripture to know what we believe on these issues and why we believe them. Uh, and may you uh, preserve in your church, Lord, unity as we give ourselves to obey your word um, and as we serve humbly each other and as we obey your word and all that it says on these matters. Uh, may you glorify yourself in the midst of your church for her good and for the glory of our triune God. Lord, bless us now as we go into uh, the uh, congregation um, to hear your word preached to to hear the scriptures read, to pray together before you, to sing with joy, uh, to hear the word preached, uh, to attend to the means of grace and the Lord's Supper, to have our souls encouraged, and to read and hear your word read. Lord, um, these things are given for the good of your church. So Lord, bless us now as we go into worship. May we give ourselves from the opening <coughs> reading of the scripture to the closing benediction where we give ourselves with fear and reverence and awe to your word for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>